I had been bagging John for two hours. And with that, I did not personally bag him for those two hours. As folks would come by where we were to check on John, I would grab them and have them bag. And so there may have been a, a dozen folks that bagged John during those those couple hours because we did not have a ventilator and we were breathing for John. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Russ Coatwall to Wardox. He graduated from Texas A&M University and initially served in the Army as a Medical Service Corps officer prior to attending the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. Dr. Coatwall has completed two residencies, one in family medicine and the other in aerospace medicine, and he also holds a Master's of Public Health from UT Galveston. He has held Army operational assignments, including 75th Ranger Regimental Surgeon and Deputy Surgeon of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg. Dr. Coatwall has been a significant contributor to many paradigm-shifting publications in the area of tactical combat casualty care and pre-hospital medicine, and has served as Director of Trauma Care Delivery for the Joint Trauma System. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode of Wardox, we're privileged to be joined by Colonel Retired Dr. Russ Coatwall. Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. You had a non-traditional route into Army medicine that you served as a Medical Service Corps officer after graduating from Texas A&M University and before attending medical school at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience as an MSC officer and what led you to pursue medicine in the Army? So initially, uh, going to Texas A&M, I was uh, unsure of what I wanted to do as a, as a career and uh, what I wanted to do in going into the military. And so initially, what I thought I'd do is be a medevac pilot. And that's what initially I was striving for. Unfortunately, my eyesight did not lend itself to doing that. And so I chose uh, the Medical Service and as I went into the Medical Service Corps, what I wanted to do was uh, still be assigned to a an infantry organization, so a battalion or brigade. And so I gained an assignment as a medical platoon leader to the um, 135 Cacti at the 25th ID, and that was in 1986. And then that unit converted over later on to the 427 Wolfhounds. Both were in 3rd Brigade of the 25th ID. And so, although a little bit non-traditional as far as many folks going straight through school, for me, I did not because I wasn't sure that I wanted to go into medicine. And while I was there, what I was contemplating was whether I wanted to go into combat arms or go into medicine. And ultimately, I chose medicine. Starting off as a medical platoon leader there was interesting and unique. I worked with a PA. I worked with uh, some great medics. And because what they knew in medicine, I wanted to learn a little bit more. And so I became EMT qualified while I was out there in Hawaii. And uh, with that, I would do a little bit of medicine with folks in the platoon at that time. From there, I went into medical logistics and became the division medical supply officer for the 25th ID. I also was an assistant S4 for the for a medical battalion that was there at the time, and eventually also worked at the hospital at Triple Army Medical Center in their logistics division. 
And so all that I absolutely thought were invaluable experiences that helped me later on as a physician. And so both working at a uh, battalion, infantry battalion level, and then also working in medical logistics. So let's explore that just a little bit more. What in particular, as an MSC officer, did you learn that really did help you as you became and transitioned to become a medical corps officer? Uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but in essence, what I, I learned I wanted to do was to work in, in an infantry battalion and or infantry brigade. And I wanted to continue to do that in the future as well. It, and so that gave me the experiences of a staff at that organizational level, uh, gave me the experiences of interactions that occur on that, that level and deployments at that level. And so overall, it also gave me a, a sort of an understanding of, of, of a small town population. And later on, yes, I went into a residency in family medicine. But what attracted me to that was sort of being a small town doctor. And uh, in an infantry battalion, I thought that was a great size in order to do that. So you're not talking about uh, a large city where you're working in an urban uh, area, but you're talking about a unit of individuals and uh, and their families, and you're working with them on a regular basis. And then uh, later on, as I found that I wanted to go into family medicine, part of the calculus of that, or the decision for that, was that I was attracted to rural medicine and thus a small population. Does that make sense? It does. So the rural population and the family medicine experience that you had, you trained at Martin Army Medical Center. What ultimately drove you to become interested in becoming the battalion surgeon for the Ranger Regiment? So backing up a little bit, it, it wasn't as easy as that as far as going into family medicine. I struggled because I found that just about every discipline fascinating. So I looked at a variety of different surgical subspecialties and specialties. I, I looked at uh, pediatrics. I looked at OBGYN. I looked at just about every specialty. And I thought all had some, uh, some merit and things that I wanted to do in the future. And so it was a very, very difficult decision. And ultimately, I think that was the other part was that family medicine gave me the opportunity to do a little bit of, of everything and to sort of then grow the areas that I wanted to grow. And so for me, I had an interest in emergency medicine and, uh, and trauma. And so I did extra rotations than that through my residency. And then also other areas that I found of interest, I did extra things in those areas as well. And so going from family medicine back into the Ranger Regiment, it was, once again, goes back to that that initial assignment that I had with the 25th ID that I absolutely loved working with that organization. Now, prior to going out to the 25th ID in, in 1986, I had I wanted to go to Ranger School and be a Ranger. And part of the reason why I wanted to be a Ranger, which is probably just as equally as important as my wanting to go into medicine, was the fact that I was influenced here at Texas a &M. And so the 16th president of the Texas a &M University was a guy by the name of James uh, um, Earl Rudder. And uh, Earl Rudder was in charge of 2nd Ranger Battalion going into World War II, and uh, his battalion climbed the, the cliffs there at Point Huck. And so here they had uh, Texas A&M, they've got an organization called Rudder's Rangers, and they have a lot of influence through the military, and especially from General Rudder. And uh, so to wanted to go to, to Ranger School and then ultimately wanted to go into the Ranger Regiment. And so as I was going to the 25th ID, prior to, I was in OBC, uh, for basic course, at uh, Fort Sam. Houston. And at that time, the MSE and the Medical Corps did not have avenues to go to Ranger School. And so a tech officer there at uh, OBC said, hey, you know, what you could do is you can call out to the 25th ID and see if they're willing to give you a slot. 
And so I called out there. I got a hold of the battalion commander I was going to. His name was Tom Hill. And uh, he was the, the battalion commander at 135 Cacti and uh, told him I want to go to ranger school. And uh, we talked about it for a little bit. And he saw my passion for that. And he said, OK. And he gave me a slot. I went from OEC to ranger school and then out to the 25th ID. And so Tom Hill ended up retiring as a four-star general, but he was instrumental. He was a, a phenomenal commander, had a lot of influence on me and provided me with a lot of leadership and that I did not forget. Second commander that I had, that was of the 427 Wolfhounds, was James Campbell. He also retired as a general, but also I had a lot of mentorship, leadership that he provided to me, and I did not forget. Uh, the, there's another person also that was instrumental in that was uh, Command Sergeant Major Rocky Hauser, who was Command Sergeant Major of the, both those battalions at the time. And I used to go just about everywhere with him and learn from him. And so all invaluable and helped to shape what I wanted to do later on in life beyond uh, medical school, beyond my residency in what I wanted to do for the military. So part of that was wanting to be a military physician, not just a physician who happened to be in the military. And so I wanted those to be equal components of what I did. And so with that, that drove me towards towards the Rangers, one that had a desire, a strong desire, passion to get to the Ranger Regiment. And then also had a strong desire to be a physician. And so hopefully wanted to do both. Now I was kind of unique at that time. So it was 1999. And at that time there were that many. Actually, I don't think there were any physicians being assigned in the Army to a battalion level that were residency trained. And so it was primarily GMOs. And so I was one of the first, if not the first, to be residency trained and be sent out to a to a battalion. They've done it. To, they did it at the brigade, but not at the battalion level. And probably it's because there's not that many battalions that are filled during peacetime. And so that gave me the opportunity. And, and that is the reason why I went to the, the Rangers and the 3rd Ranger Battalion. So fast forwarding, you've completed your residency and now you're assigned in the medical corps as a battalion surgeon for the 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment at Fort Benning, Georgia. During that assignment, you were deployed three times. Can you tell us about your first deployment in 2001 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan? Backing up a little bit, I was initially assigned to 3rd Ranger Battalion in, in 1999. What I wanted to do is do something unique, and so I continued to uh, work up at the hospital and do a clinic, not just for patients coming into the hospital, but specifically for Ranger Rangers and Ranger families. And so it became a Ranger family clinic at uh, Martin Army. And then so I'd do minor surgical procedures. I would follow Ranger wives through their pregnancy. I would take care of the children. And so it was very fulfilling from 1999 to 2001 in, in doing a whole host of family practice for the Rangers and then also for others that were at Martin Army. And so then there was one morning when he was a mortarman, his uh, name was Sergeant Jay, as well we'll call him, and his wife, uh, Mrs. Jay, uh, Mrs. Jay was uh, was following her uh, for a pregnancy, and Sergeant Jay I worked with at, at the 3rd Ranger Battalion as he was a mortarman, and we'd uh, go out to the uh, the ranges, and, and that's how I got to know him. But uh, Mrs. Jay called me one morning, it was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and she said, you know, I, I think I'm contracting, and I think, and it was her first baby, and I would, I, I think that I'd like to, to to see you up at the hospital if I could. And, uh, and I said, sure. And uh, I told her I'll be up there within an hour and for her to do the same. And she did. And so about six, seven o'clock in the morning, I saw her at the hospital. And uh, it was a beautiful morning, by the way, blue skies, gorgeous morning. And it was actually a Tuesday in Columbus, Georgia. And it's unseasonably cool for Columbus, Georgia in September that day. But uh, but we met. I did a cervical check and, uh, and sure enough, she was dilated enough for me to meet her, put her on the monitors and went back to the back room and went. And, then, and that call room started reading a book 
called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And I had been reading it before, but I wanted to finish it that morning, which I did, written by Hal Moore, as you know. And so then I got to finishing it just a little bit before nine o'clock that morning. I went out uh, back out to see Mrs. J. There was nobody else on the floor. It was just Mrs. J that was on the monitors. So I went into her room, did another cervical check. She was progressing very nicely. She had a TV on in her room. I looked up at the TV. Both of us were looking at it, and we saw an aircraft hit the towers in New York City. And so I excused myself. I went out to the uh, nurse's station, called back to the unit, and uh, they said uh, we were going into the planning phase and uh, for deployment and to get over to the unit as quickly as possible. I told them where I was. They said, well, finish the delivery and then come over to the unit for the planning phase. And then sure enough, I went back in at two hours, about 11 o'clock that morning, Mrs. J delivered a little girl. That was the only baby to deliver at Martin Army that day because the post had been locked down. I went from there to over to the uh, battalion area. We went into the planning phase and, and then shortly thereafter deployed and uh, found ourselves jumping into Afghanistan on October 19th of 2001. And so with that, there was 199 of us that, that jumped that day. And while we did that, there are a lot of things that went through my mind for individual care that was being provided on the objective, which was primarily jump injuries that night. But it prompted a lot of thoughts, which I wrote down. And I started collecting data from that point on for the assignments and the deployments that I was on. And, and so that was the, the start of things in 2001. After that jump, we that jump was uh, Objective Rhino, that uh, the objective was taken over by the Marines and became Camp Rhino. We then reformed and refit at our ISB, our intermediate support base in Masira, and then did follow on assignments or missions into Pakistan Afghan, and Afghanistan in multiple areas. And so with that, our battalion was spread into different uh, areas depending on the need and uh, provided our, our services in that respect. And so that was the first deployment. What were your medical assets for that deployment? Who did you have with you? And so as we were a battalion, I had all the assets that a battalion would have. Unfortunately, it was less than I wanted. And so initially I had 12 medics, a PA myself, and uh, that was part of what I thought about. And from that day, both myself and the senior medics and other officers in the regiment continued to grow the amount of medical assets that would help to improve things for future deployments. We did supplement for for our jump, we supplemented with a, a liaison from an external organization, surgical uh, team, if you will, that uh, his name was uh, Jim Zarnick. And he actually jumped in with us uh, there at Objective Rhino. And it was a pleasure to have him uh, there and help with the continuity as we provided care to those individuals on the objective and shifting them to that surgical asset and then ultimately to home stations. So what we found out very quickly is that we needed to work in components that were smaller than battalion level as we'd work on company and platoon level. And so we needed to grow our medical assets and medics, the number of medics in our organization to accommodate that. We almost tripled the number of medics per battalion in, in follow-on years. And then we doubled the number of PAs with, with two PAs per, per battalion in subsequent years as well. So then in June of 2002, you then deployed back to Afghanistan. How had things changed at that point? And did your medical plan as the 3rd Battalion Surgeon change for this mission? And yes, I mean, so the, the mission or my plan changed with uh, with every deployment as uh, it was a dynamic environment and uh, the sets of missions that were provided had changed with every deployment. And so from 2001 to the last time that I deployed with the Rangers in 2000 and 2009 and 2010, it, it changed almost every year as far as what we were doing. And so in 2002, we went to Bagram and then sure, I had been to Bagram in 2000 
2001, briefly as I'd gone through there and ultimately had uh, done more time there in Kandahar in 2001. In 2002, I uh, spent some time at Bagram, but then also went out to our battalion, was employed to help set up uh, bases out in Asadabad and Shkin. And, uh, and so we had uh, moved forces out there. Like I said before, we were working more at a company and platoon level and providing the patrols on those levels as well. So did several different missions using aircraft, several different missions using ground vehicles, several missions where we walked and uh, did long patrols, some of them uh, a couple of days in length. And so I, I would submit that the more than trauma that summer, what unfortunately we had were cases of malaria. And so initially, uh, my PA and, and, and medics had uh, gone out to Islamabad, and they had set up things there. And then we had a senior medic and uh, go out to Shkin. And in both locations, uh, we had folks that started coming down with classic uh, signs and symptoms that you'd see with malaria. And so also started collecting those data after I got out to, uh, and with all that, after that deployment, wrote it all up and, uh, and published that in JAMA, just to help people or remind people that that malaria still is an issue, and uh, not just from the China into Burma theater during the World War II era for Rangers, but also in Afghanistan for modern day Rangers. Were there any particular other clinical cases, non-infectious disease that uh, are remarkable to you from those early days in Afghanistan? The ones in 2001 from the jump in to into objective rhino, those ortho injuries, what, what that impressed upon me, and so it was low extremity injuries, not unlike what we see in the peacetime, but what, what impressed upon me was the method for which we provided pain control. And although TC3 at that time was a proponent of switching from IM morphine to IV morphine, um, still starting a saline lock in the middle of the night. And, and that's when we did the majority of our missions it was under the cover darkness. And so those those missions were those jumps, that jump was done in the middle of the night. And with that, starting saline locks can always be a challenge during even during the day, but even more so at night. And so I started thinking about actually a pediatric rotation that I had in Biloxi as a medical student where they used and, and I said, you know, why can't we do this for adults? Oral transmucosal fentanyl citrate. And so I got to thinking about that. And then basically when we went into Iraq, employed that oral transmucosal fentanyl citrate or OTFC for pain control for issues that we had in the future and starting in Iraq in 2003. Clinical cases were primarily those ortho cases from 2001. As far as 2002, not very significant trauma. There were a couple of cases, but all minor, although First Range Battalion incurred a lot more trauma cases with the Battle of Takargar that occurred in March of 2002. You remained as the 3rd Battalion Surgeon and in March of 2003, you deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Tell us about the preparations for that mission. And so interesting enough with all these, you can give me one second. So in Afghanistan, before we left, just to go back for just a second, we ended up doing two jumps into Afghanistan. One was a desert landing strip in the middle of nowhere that occurred after uh, Objective Rhino in order for us to prosecute other missions. And so so basically, the first two jumps uh, that were done by the Rangers during current conflicts were, were into Afghanistan. So going into Iraq, that was another prospect. And so that did come to fruition. And we ended up having two more jumps into Iraq into combat, one that occurred into a desert landing strip initially, and the second one that occurred 
occurred into an objective called uh, H1, which was an airfield. And so in essence, it became an airfield seizure, which is one of the mission sets that we are taught to do as, as rangers was to, for seizing airfields. And so with that, multiple casualties as we initially went into Iraq and all those initially initial casualties or most of those initial casualties were uh, once again injuries from jump and so primarily orthopedic did at that time go ahead and employ pain management through OTFC whenever we could or oral transmucosal fentanyl citrate and then collected those data and then published that after that deployment as well talking about those initial cases for those missions and so I had a few more injuries in Iraq than Afghanistan and I contemplated as to why basically looking through the literature at that time there was a, a colonel deploy that was a MSC officer that uh, talked about attrition rates during combat, and he had ass assessed that through multiple different wars historically. And one of the things that he had proposed was that during day missions into combat uh, for jumps, you would have uh, 1% uh, attrition rate versus nighttime airborne missions would incur a 2% uh, attrition rate. And so I took all the casualties from all four of the jumps, two of them into Afghanistan and two into Iraq, and actually looked at that to see if there were any differences. And in essence, that we actually blew through the attrition rate in Iraq. And the reason being is that we actually jumped heavier for those two missions in Iraq than the two missions into Afghanistan. And because we were heavier, we actually exceeded the capacity of the T-10 Charlie parachute as we were going into combat. And with that, people hit the ground harder and saw that with folks that were carrying mortar plates and uh, sniper system, weapon systems, which is crucial to identify that because that's a big loss when you're losing those type of weapon systems or personnel that are working with those weapon systems. And so part of that was, uh, once again, just reinforcing uh, collecting data and trying to be as granular or detailed as possible through that deployment as well. Follow-on mission after after jumping in. So I jumped into, into each one. So I was on the second jump into, into Iraq. The follow-on mission was to support different folks from the main group that then branched off from us at H1 to then hit the Haditha Dam. And so I supported them through medical evacuation over the first few days and would evacuate casualties from the Haditha Dam, which we actually hit on April 1st of 2003. And then subsequently, uh, I then uh, stayed up on the dam from about the 6th of April until the end of the month. One of the things that was unique about those uh, jumps into Iraq versus Afghanistan as well is that we were prepared for ChemBio. And so we were wearing our Kimbio suits at that time. And so you can imagine jumping with heavier loads and jumping in, in Kimbio suits and uh, into that type of, of scenario. And uh, many of us continued to wear that at least over the first month that we were in Iraq. When you look experience. back on those four jumps, is there any particular moments that come to mind where you say, I really remember this particular moment on that jump? So two of the jumps I was not on. So the first jump into Iraq, which was into a desert landing strip that I was not on that jump, I actually provided medical support for it. And so came in on an aircraft to pick up the casualties and take them out. And uh, that was the first time that we used OTFs. For me, the injuries in Afghanistan off those jumps were not as critical as the ones that we saw on the fourth jump, which was the second jump into Iraq. And with that, yes, there were two individuals that had prominent injuries that were most notable. One was a first sergeant that unfortunately had a leg get caught up in his risers for his parachute. 
and had a total dislocation of his right knee. And, and with that, despite several of us working on him on the ground and trying to reduce that that knee, we were unable to do so. But we were able to give him some alleviation of that pain. And, and he was one, as we called in the aircraft. So at the time as well, after we jumped in, one of the reasons why we had some issues that with some injuries is that the Iraqis had fouled the airfield. And so there were big boulders and tank holes and uh, all sorts of debris on the on the airfield that were hazards. And so we had to clear all those hazards. And then we landed a uh, aircraft, eventually smaller aircraft, in order to pick out, take out casualties. And so that first sergeant with that knee injury, we did have an orthopedic surgeon that was on that aircraft. And uh, he was able to provide some additional medication or anesthesia as he had a CRNA with him. And uh, they were able to reduce that knee once once that had they had additional anesthesia on board. Uh, that was one. Another one was a, a compound fracture, tip-tip fracture for another individual, a prominent one fracture that was also a challenge from a pain management standpoint and evacuation standpoint. Overall, we the aircraft that we had come in was a small aircraft, but we packed that aircraft as full as we could uh, with those casualties because we knew we had uh, follow-on missions shortly thereafter. So you mentioned that you started kind of collecting data on several different things that you were noticing. In those early days in 2001 and Afghanistan in 2003, what was military medicine doing in order to learn lessons medically? Or was it something that you were just doing on your own to say, hey, we need to get some data and make some informed decisions? That's an interesting question. And and remind me, I'd like to come back to, to the follow-on mission of Aditha Dam as there was a casualty there I'd like to discuss, if you don't mind. But I, I had no idea what other folks were doing from other units. Initially in 2001, 2002, as a deployed to Afghanistan, would come back to Fort Benning in Martin Army. I felt like I was, and other individuals, the infantrymen in our organizations, and we all felt like there were very few folks that had experienced things on those in combat yet. And that's because we hadn't ramped up the numbers yet for having other people start to look at some of these issues as well. And so I think, one, you didn't have the numbers until Iraq started, because once Iraq opened up, there are a lot more people that were deploying, and there are a lot more assets that were deploying. The other thing is that when you look at things at a battalion level, outside of special operations, they weren't filling their physician positions in peacetime. And so there are PAs there that were medics there that were that were doing a phenomenal job, and some of them were collecting data and some were not. But but there are very few physicians that had the connection at the battalion level until they were proficed to fill those positions. And so with that part of it is just learning the the job and doing the job medically first. And so for me, part of it went back to uh, the 25th ID and that I had worked in a medical platoon before and sort of knew some of the uh, the intricacies of, of a medical platoon and uh, and how it supports a battalion. And, and then the intricacies of the, the staff and, and the workings of a battalion and also a brigade. And so I didn't have to learn some of those things as a new medical corps officer going there as I had already learned all those things previously as a medical service corps officer. And so I don't know how many folks uh, actually collected data. I would talk about it and actually I would present that at conferences that I go to and say, hey, um, I'm collecting data. And then I'd share what I was doing and share how I was doing it with other people. And some elected to, to do that in future years and, and some did not. 
And so I think part of uh, the reason why I went into a second residency, once again, it uh, is a deliberation as I thought about uh, aerospace medicine and why I thought aerospace medicine would be optimal for me to go into is that one, they did have a master's in public health that was offered with that residency. And then two, I felt like it would help me and uh, fill the gap in, in some of my knowledge and understanding of providing care during evacuation, both on fixed wing and rotor wing platforms. And so that's why I did that. And so then the Masters of Public Health, the reason why I wanted to do that was that it helped guide me and gave me a better understanding of biostatistics and epidemiology so that I could do both individual care and population care. And, and I thought that as a battalion surgeon, as a regimental surgeon, as a brigade surgeon, as a division surgeon, as somebody that's working out in those different populations, you, you can be a great uh, physician by providing individual care. I think you can be a better physician by providing population care as well. And so I didn't know what I know now, but I knew that it was it was important to collect data. I didn't know how I was going to, to, to prosecute that data. But as I went through that residency and as I got that master's, I actually published three articles off the bat, talking about the jump injuries in Iraq and Afghanistan, talking about the OTFC, oral transmucosal fendocitrate, and talking about the malarial cases that we had. And so it was helpful from my standpoint. And through the years, if you, if you, if you look back through the medical literature, there are other medical providers from the Ranger Regiment, both PAs and the medics and also physicians that have published many articles. And I'd submit that probably that, that regiment has quite a few folks that have done that as compared to other brigades. And I'm not sure how to get to the level of having other brigades and, and divisions public publishing things that are happening in their units. But I think that's a necessity. I think that's where we have a, a big gap is what happens in the pre-hospital environment. And we can only find that out uh, by collecting data in those brigades and divisions. You had mentioned that you had a particular casualty that you had treated on the mission to the Haditha Dam. Can you tell us about that event? And yes, and thank you again for that, that reminder. And, and so his name, we'll just say his name was John. And so basically, Aditha Dam, if you look back in history in 2003, very significant as far as the, the battle for Aditha Dam. And with that, it sort of decreased as the days went on, but fighting was most intense during that first week. On the 6th or the 7th of, uh, of April of 2003, there was an individual, well, there was actually one of the platoons went uh, on a patrol and they were in clearing one building on the far side of the dam. And you got to realize that the dam is, it was, uh, the Haditha Dam was actually, and I think it still is, uh, the longest dam in the world. But they were clearing a building on one side of the dam. And because of all the mortar fire and indirect fire that was coming into the Haditha dam from enemy forces, that structure collapsed. And with that collapse of that structure, one of the individuals, John, was trapped under a lot of debris. They freed him from underneath that debris and brought him to me. And I was in the middle of the dam. I felt like that was the best place to be because then patrols going out to the left or the right could uh, come to me at an equal distance, in equal time. And so they brought that casualty to me. And, and with, with John, he was not breathing. And from what I could see at that moment, I had multiple injuries, a lot of ortho and, and partially uh, due to the, uh, well, actually a lot of it due to crush injuries. And uh, and so after intubating him and uh, addressing his injuries as uh, much as possible, one of the things that we um, did was uh, we called for a medevac and that medevac uh, was unable to come because of the turbulence and the warfare. And because of that medevac, I said no, that they were unable to, to get to our location of the dam. And so we had mission aircraft through a partner unit that supported us, rotary wing aircraft. And, and with that mission aircraft, they brought broke their cycle of, uh, of rest 
And so the mission aircraft was made into a CASVAC platform or casualty evacuation platform. And we were able to put a resuscitation team, which uh, was comprised of a uh, CRNA and a emergency medicine physician. And they came on that aircraft to pick up John, but that was about two hours into everything with, with uh, what was happening with John. And so I had been I had been bagging John for two hours. And with that, I did not personally bag him for those two hours. As folks would come by where we were to check on John, I would grab them and have them bag. And so there may have been a dozen folks that bagged John during those those couple hours because we did not have a ventilator and we were breathing for John. And so with that, one of the things that I had, I had thought about before that mission, and it sounds kind of kind of silly, but there are a lot of lightweight bags, bag valve masks and systems that are out there. And I chose to go with a heavy duty one. And I chose to go with the one that came with the ChemDecon type of systems. And so it was a very heavy duty one. And the reason why I chose that was I said, if I'm in a position where I'm going in into some of these uh, rural or these austere areas, especially for, for initial entry missions, I'm going to be bagging for a while. And so I want something that's going to work and something that's going to be very durable. And so sure enough, we bagged him for those couple hours on the ground. He was bagged for another hour or two on the aircraft until they got to where they took him for, for further care. And ultimately, John did survive and do very well. It was multiple um, injuries he, he did recover from. It took him a while. But then eventually, after that deployment, I uh, met with uh, him and his parents in, in Columbus, Georgia. And I gave him that, that bag and said, this is what kept you alive for almost four hours. And so I, I don't know where John is now, but it was, it was truly a pleasure to have seen him come out of that alive and then also to have met his parents. This completes part one of our Wardocs interview with retired Army Colonel, Dr. Russ Coatwall. We hope you get an opportunity to listen to part two of the interview with this true military medical hero on Wardocs podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.